0: This audio file comes from the Labrie Ideas Library at wwwlabrie ideas libraryorg The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family, and colleagues. But please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Labrie Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Labrie Fellowship.
1: Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello. Uh Aha. Okay, so last term I lectured on the question, what does it mean to be a man? And so I thought I'd pick something easier and a bit less controversial um, for this term. Um, So we're going to go with it. Um, I'm going to start this lecture, as I started that one, with the words of Jim Paul, um, by saying that um, the views expressed in the lecture do not necessarily represent the views of Labrie Fellowship, um, nor the church that employs me. These are are my views on Revelation, and I'm going to tell... Actually, I just spoiled what they're my views on, so let's go. Uh, the ambitious title of this lecture is The Apocalypse in an Hour, um, so I'm going to begin by disappointing some of you. By apocalypse, I do not mean the catastrophic end of history. That's not what I mean. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we suppose apocalypse means because of how popular culture has picked up the word, post-apocalyptic landscapes, all that. But that's not what I mean, and it's not what I'm going to talk about. The apocalypse that I'm going to talk about is the final book of the New Testament. Most of us here would call that book Revelation, but many Christians around the world simply call it the apocalypse. And they call it this because the very first word of this last book of the Bible in Greek is apocalypsis the first word. So if you were hearing it read aloud in its original language, as all of its original readers would have done, the first three words to meet your ears would have been Apocalypse Jesu Christu. Apocalypse apocalypse of or from Jesus Christ. So that's, um, that's the Apocalypse. It's this whole book that ends our Bibles. So let's go for a definition. This is the first heading on your handouts. Um, I hope everyone has one of these, if you don't, maybe there's some extra floating around somewhere. Definition, so in Greek, apocalypsis is just the ordinary word for something being unveiled, uncovered, or revealed. So you've got apo, which means from, which means cover, lift the cover from, apocalypse, that's what you got. So if you smell something cooking in the manor kitchen, but you have no idea what it is, and you approach the oven and you open the door and you see through the steam what is inside, that's an apocalypse. That's the general meaning of the word in the Greek of the time, some unveiling and uncovering of something that was once hidden. But apocalypsis was also used specifically and to describe a certain kind of dream or vision when God would pull back the curtain to show someone what was really going on from a divine perspective and doing this through the use of large and startling symbols. So, generally, it's a cover being lifted off something to reveal the soup in the pot. <laughs> but specifically, it was a certain kind of dream or vision that was to un- where God was unveiling what was really going on through the use of large and startling symbols. Now, this happened all the time, frequently, to the Old Testament prophets. It happened to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Amos, and especially Daniel. Now, I suggested, some of you might have seen this, that you read Daniel 7 before coming this evening. Did anyone take me up on that? Did anyone read Daniel? Okay, a few people. Daniel 7. So there, um, in an apocalyptic vision, Daniel sees four beasts rising out from the sea. And these four beasts, we're later told, represent four empires who come to attack God's people. And then in the midst of all the chaos, Daniel glimpses the the throne of the ancient of days, the God of Israel. And he sees what looks like a human being, a son of man, ascending into the heavenly throne room and given all the authority, glory and sovereign power of God himself. This is an apocalypse. <laughs> It was an apocalypse for Daniel, an unveiling in both its general and specific senses, because in his real-life situation where he is, Daniel is surrounded by beastly empires who boast about their authority. But God wants to show Daniel what is really going on in this situation. He wants to show him what is real despite all appearances. And so, through these large and startling symbols, beasts with horns and weird heads and all that kind of thing, God unveils what is really real. Though the beastly empires rage, the Son of Man, at God's right hand, will one day master those beasts and take their dominion. That's what's real. That's what's going to happen. That's an apocalypse. Now, the same thing that happened to Daniel, happened to a man called John in the final book of the Bible. Um, could we get the light turned, these front lights turned out, just so you can see the picture a bit better? Um, a man called John in the final book of the Bible. I want you to listen and read along, it's on your handout, um, to a very important description um, of the book of Revelation from the New Testament scholar Richard Balcom. This is in his classic book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation, um, which is up here on the table with a bunch of other interesting books about um, the, the apocalypse. So, this is what Balcom says. Every part of this is important. Here, John's work belongs to the apocalyptic tradition in which a seer is taken in a vision into God's throne room in heaven to learn the secrets of the divine purpose and to see this world from a heavenly perspective. John is given a glimpse behind the scenes of history to see what's really going on in the events of his time and place. He is also transported in vision into the final future of the world so that he can see the present from the perspective of its final outcome. The effect of John's visions, one might say, is to expand his reader's world both spatially into heaven and temporally into the future." That might be the single best paragraph you can find for understanding what Revelation is doing. And can you see how under this definition, an apocalypse is given to reveal and not conceal? You're supposed to leave the book of Revelation saying, ah, yeah, that's what's going on. But that's not how a lot of people feel (laughs) when they read this book, and it's a real pity. So that's some Old Testament background, Daniel 7. But then we come to the New Testament where Jesus takes up apocalyptic language as well. And this was present in the other passage I asked you to read before the lecture in Matthew 23 and 24. This is called the Olivet Discourse. So in the days just before his crucifixion, Jesus stands in the Jerusalem temple denouncing the injustice of Jerusalem's religious leaders. Over and over again, he calls them hypocrites, blind guides, children of hell, whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. They are perpetrators of gross injustice, Jesus says, and in this they are just like their ancestors, killing the prophets who come to speak the word of God to them. It's intense, (laughs) but then it gets worse. Jesus says that all the blood... All the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, from A to Z, or Z, um, is going to come upon them. It's going to be poured out upon them. Jerusalem and its temple are going to be destroyed, not one stone left upon another, within that generation. Within that generation. So Jesus drops the mic and leaves the temple. <laughs> He walks out of the temple with His disciples, and they exit Jerusalem, and as they stand on the Mount of Olives gazing at Jerusalem in all of its glory, His disciples are absolutely mystified. This is, after all, the city where God dwells, and from which the light of God is supposed to extend through the whole world until the very consummation of the age. The temple itself, my goodness, the the temple itself was a representation of the entire cosmos. The world is there because it is the very dwelling place of the God who made the world. For the temple to be destroyed would be the end of the world as they knew it. It would just be the end of the world. Everything they've been told was going to happen to the world would be over. And so they say, tell us when these things are going to be. Tell us. And this is when Jesus launches into an apocalyptic vision called the Olivet Discourse. Within their generation, Jesus says, the sun is going to go dark, the moon's going to turn to blood, stars will fall from the sky. It's an apocalypse, and it unveils the destruction of Jerusalem, which will happen, Jesus says, within his disciples' generation. Before his disciples die this thing that he's talking about is going to happen. And he's most clear about this in Luke's gospel. I put the quote on your paper. And he says to them, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. God's vengeance on unjust Jerusalem shedding innocent blood for years, for generations. And it's all going to happen within his disciples' generation and it did. Some 40 years after Jesus' ascension into heaven, in 70 AD, the Romans besieged Jerusalem and they leveled the entire city. This is a painting by Francesco Haez of the, of the destruction of the temple, which was the final act in Rome's destruction of Jerusalem. This is the altar built of huge white stones very high, people being slaughtered all around. The, the um, The the furniture from the temple, there's a lampstand, the menorah, being brought out of of the holy place, which you see is on fire. That is the unthinkable. That is the end of the world for a first century Jew. This is an inaccurate painting because Josephus, historian, who we know about this event from in detail, said that there were rivers of blood in this occasion. An accurate painting, would, the marble on that altar would not be so white, but there would be, there would be blood everywhere, but it wouldn't be as, a, as approachable that way. The temple was destroyed, one of the great wonders of the Mediterranean world, never to be rebuilt. And all of this Jesus describes in visionary apocalyptic language in the Olivet Discourse. There are versions of it in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, but it does not appear in John's Gospel. It does not appear in John's Gospel. So, allow me to lay my kind of interpretive cards on the table for the night. My interpretive grid for Revelation for the evening is that the book of Revelation is John's Olivet discourse. The book of Revelation is John's Olivet discourse. John's apocalypse unveils to us the same event as Jesus's apocalypse in the Olivet Discourse, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. It also takes us further into the future, as Richard Baucom says, to the end of history. But all its symbols are rooted in this event that Jesus said would take place before his disciples died. And the book is addressed to Christians living in the years before this event. There's another painting by David Roberts, absolutely astonishing painting. really does look like the apocalypse, doesn't it? The book, Revelation, is addressed to Christians living in the years before this event who will find their loyalty to Jesus tested in the face of it. And that loyalty will be tested by the vaunted claims of religious power and of political power. On the one hand, the Christians who come from a Jewish background the religious power represented by Jerusalem will ask them to deny Jesus Christ and take the side of Jerusalem and all it represents. On the other hand, the political power of Rome will demand that Christians worship and swear fealty to the Emperor and all the gods of the Pantheon to prove their devotion to the Empire. And so, squeezed from both sides as the world around them hurdles toward an unparalleled political crisis, these early Christians see martyrdom as a real threat. They see martyrdom as a real threat. If they are to hold the line and stay true to Jesus, they will most likely die. But the great unveiling of Revelation is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given not to Rome, nor to Jerusalem, but to Jesus. And in this way, Revelation remains an unveiling for Christians throughout the world and time who find themselves oppressed and threatened by religious and political power. That is the strength of this book. An interesting thing that you find is that the more comfortable a society is, the more Christians are weirded out and embarrassed by Revelation. But the more persecuted a Christian minority is, And the more they feel the pressure coming from religious and political power, the more precious this book is. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, there are other interpretive views out there, as you might well be thinking. (laughs) Um, We can talk about them later. Perhaps the best book you can get to get a handle on Revelation is is this one up here. It's called Revelation, Four Views, A Parallel Commentary. This book takes every section of Revelation, so there's the text, and then in four columns gives you what the four major views on the book say about it. It's absolutely wonderful. Just so good. And a really good introduction. I'm sticking basically in one column tonight, (laughs) Um, because in an hour, um, you can't do any more than that. You might not even be able to do this. Um, We'll see. So I want to get through the whole book and I want to get through it with a fly-through interpretation from the perspective I've just described. In technical terms, this will be a partial preterist amillennial interpretation. Some of you need to know that. Most of you don't. Um, And I will say I'm putting a moratorium on all of those words until the end of the lecture in the Q&A time, so you don't have to worry. (laughs) Um, And the the last thing I'll say before we fly into this is that um, I I found myself once talking about Revelation with someone, and uh, they were asking me what I thought about it, and I told them basically what I just told you, except only a little, because they interrupted me. And they looked at me like I just said something unimaginably horrible, and they said, I believe Jesus is coming back. And I was like, well, I, I I do too. And I said, I, I believe with all my heart that he's coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. But because I was saying the book of Revelation is mostly about something that has happened in the past, they thought I was saying that Jesus is not coming in the future. That's not, that's not where we're going here. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to get that out of the way. We are going to see the second coming of Christ in this book, but perhaps not as much as some people would say there is in the book. So, with all my caveats out of the way, let's jump in. Um, Let's begin with the first five verses of Revelation 1. They're on your handout. Would you read this first paragraph with me? Apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now notice. This apocalypse is written to real people in a real place. Seven churches in Asia sometime in the AD 60s, I think. We can talk about that later. There is a crisis coming for them, and the time is near. 2,000 years ago, the events this book is primarily concerned with were going to happen soon. I think that is the most important thing to understand when looking at the book of Revelation. Soon. Near. Near. Now the author is traditionally understood to be the Apostle John, the youngest of Jesus' twelve <coughs> disciples, and the only one to die of old age. John has been arrested by the Roman authorities, and he has been, uh, he's been arrested for the word and testimony of Jesus, and exiled to a Roman penal colony on a small island called Patmos. See that right there? Patmos. How many people have been there? Apparently it's quite a party island now. Um, And this is where he has the apocalypse. And specifically, he has one apocalypse with four visions, each with an unveiling. That's uh, on the back of your sheet, under the outline. One apocalypse with four visions, each with an unveiling. That's the easiest way to outline the book. And each unveiling begins with a description of the visionary state in which John receives that unveiling. He says, I was in the Spirit. That's the visionary state that shows you that you're seeing a new vision. And so there are four of them. The first one's on Patmos with Jesus unveiled, chapters 1 to 3. Vision 2 is in heaven with God's throne unveiled. Vision 3 is in the wilderness with the harlot unveiled. And Vision 4 is on a mountain with the bride unveiled. So we begin with the first vision. Notice there's an outline that shows you all of that underneath don't get lost in that. I'm not going to hit all of that, but it shows you that uh, Revelation is an elegant series uh, featuring the number seven everywhere, <laughs> um, which is the number of perfection. God's Sabbath rest. Okay. Uh, vision one on Patmos, Jesus unveiled. On Patmos, in the spirit, On the Lord's day, John hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These are real churches just on the mainland. John's letter is going to be sent to them and he has written it to them clockwise. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, all the way around. It's going to go from one church to another and be read out loud in that circle. This is a, to a, people in a real time, real place, real geographical circumstances. Now, John hears this voice and he turns. He turns around to see who is speaking to him and suddenly he is in the temple of God. Specifically, he's in the holy place just outside the inner sanctum, because where else would you be surrounded by seven golden lampstands? And there, in the midst of the tabernacle, stands the one from Daniel's vision, that one like a son of man, and he is dressed in the robes of a priest. This is Jesus unveiled, and in this unveiling, John does not see what Jesus looks like, because he knew that from his earthly life. No, John sees what Jesus is like in a symbolic vision and one of such glory and majesty that John falls down at Jesus' feet as though dead. But Jesus lays his right hand on John, his nail-pierced hand filled with seven stars, and he says, do not fear. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those are to take place after this. So John sees Jesus unveiled as a priest in the temple, and the lampstands there represent the seven churches. As their great high priest, Jesus is there to trim their wicks and to fill their lamps with oil, as any priest would do in the temple. And that takes us to Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus does this by dictating seven letters of warning and encouragement to these churches about the crisis they're about to face. Some of them are complacent and they need to wake up. Others are faithful and they need to remain faithful. And though the worst crisis is coming, each church is given the promise that listening to Jesus will will lead to them conquering every threat they face from Rome and from Jerusalem. And in that final letter to Laodicea, the seventh church, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And after this, John looks, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Suddenly, the trumpet voice says to John, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And thus, John is swept up from the holy place of the earthly temple into the holiest place of the heavenly temple, The very throne room of God, Revelation 4. Vision 2, in heaven, God's throne unveiled. This is a tapestry by Jackie Parkinson. Um, It would be maybe as tall as, um, go, go to the top of the screen. Very tall thing, beautiful. At once I was in the spirit, John says, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This unveiled throne is surrounded by a rainbow and flaming torches with lightning and thunder, and around the throne in concentric circles are elders who represent God's people throughout time, living creatures representing the whole created world, angels representing the hosts of heaven, and then we later find the whole of creation. They are worshiping the one seated on the throne crying out, holy and worthy. They never tire of this, so great is the one who is seated on the throne. Holy is a word used all throughout the Bible to describe who God is, but worthy is not. In Greek, it is the word axios, and it was one of the terms used to acclaim and worship the emperor of Rome. Here, that loaded political term is used for the one seated on the throne the only one worthy of worship. And we see then that the scene is a parody. It's a parody. This is the reality to which the worship of the Roman emperor, to which every citizen of the empire was bound, is but a dim and distorted revelation. This is the one who is axios, who is worthy. But there is a problem in this scene. Revelation 5. In the right hand of the one seated on the throne... The hand of power and authority is a scroll, or a book. I'll say scroll. The one seated on the throne has written inside it his plan for all that must soon take place. And this scroll is completely sealed, with not one, but seven seals. And no one in that throne room is worthy to open it. No one is Axios. Swept up in the ecstasy of the moment, John begins to weep that no one is worthy to open the scroll. But then one of the elders around the throne says to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So John turns to see this royal figure, this conquering lion, and he sees a lamb standing as though it has been slain. And this is an utter shock. Because John expected to see a lion like figure conquering like a military hero. But when he turns to look, this lion is a slain lamb who is alive again, a warrior who has conquered through death and then has come out the other side. And then the unimaginable happens. This slain lamb takes the scroll from the one who sits on the throne and then sits on the throne himself. This lamb is invested with the same power and authority as the one worshipped by all of creation. And when the lamb sits on the throne, all of heaven erupts in praise, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. And blessing. The Lamb is Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. And here in the heavenly throne room, John is seeing the ascension of Jesus from heaven's point of view. The disciples saw Jesus go into the clouds above the firmament. John sees Jesus in the heavenly throne room to which Jesus ascended after he left this, after he left this earth. He ascends into that throne room to receive all power and authority in the heavenly places. And, having ascended, Jesus the Lamb begins to open the scroll that only he is worthy to open. Revelation 6. The Lamb cracks seal 1. And behold, a white horse comes riding forth from heaven. Its rider has a bow and a crown was given to him, and he comes out conquering and to conquer. The lamb cracks seal two and brings forth the red horse of war. Seal three brings the black horse of famine. Seal four, the, the pale horse of death. These are the dreaded four horsemen of the apocalypse, but they are good guys. They are good guys because look who their leader is a crowned rider on a white horse who comes forth to conquer. This rider will appear again in Revelation 19 and clearly be identified as Jesus himself. So, as these first four seals are cracked open, John sees Jesus riding forth conquering and to conquer. Even though he brings with him war, famine, and death, this is good news because he is coming forth with justice the vengeance that belongs to God alone. And this is what we find when seal five is cracked and the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne cry out in Revelation 6.10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And that is the book of Revelation in one question. How long... Until you avenge the blood of the innocent that has been shed on earth. How long, Lord, before you do something about this problem? This is also the biggest hint so far that what we're seeing is what Jesus predicted in the Olivet Discourse. Why will Jerusalem and its temple be destroyed by the Romans, according to Jesus? As God's judgment and vengeance for the innocent blood shed within its walls. Judgment and vengeance for the innocent blood shed within its walls. And it just so happens that in the years leading up to the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there was untold war, famine, and death, precisely what the four horsemen of the apocalypse bring as they ride. But things are only warming up. The martyrs see the horsemen, and they get excited that justice is finally being carried out. But they are told that they must wait for their vindication. More martyrs must be made on earth. More witnesses must give their life, and then justice will arrive. And so they watch as the lamb opens seal six crack and an earthquake shakes the entire created order. The wrath of the lamb on the throne is causing everything to collapse. Will anyone survive it? In particular, will the Christians hearing this apocalypse read to them about things that are going to happen soon there in the first century, will they survive it? That's the question you'd be asking if you were listening to this for the first time, when it was first written. Revelation 7. As if to answer the question, suddenly the shattering earthquake is arrested. John sees the four horsemen hold the catastrophe at bay, as suddenly the servants of God on earth who are living through all of that is being unveiled are sealed on their foreheads sealed for protection in the coming cataclysm with the name of God on their foreheads. And these servants are unveiled as an army of 144,000 martyrs who will conquer in this struggle. Think of that phrase, army of martyrs. This army will conquer, but like the lambs, they will conquer through martyrdom. That is how they will conquer. They will conquer by dying. That's the theme of Revelation for everyone listening. You will conquer by dying. John turns to see this 144,000, but what he actually sees is an uncountable number, for that is what the 144,000 actually meant. They come from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and they praise the Lamb with loud voices for rescuing them from the great tribulation that is the conflict between Jerusalem and Rome. The original heroes of the apocalypse are to see themselves in this number. They will soon face a great tribulation in which their faith in Jesus will put their lives at stake. And in whatever is to come, they are now to see themselves as safe before the throne of God in heaven, no matter what they face on earth. They are a victorious army of martyrs crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. Revelation 8. Then the Lamb cracks seal seven, and there is silence for about half an hour. And now, instead of hearing what is on the unsealed scroll, seven angels take up seven trumpets. Another angel takes the martyr's prayers for justice and vengeance. The angel flings these prayers to the earth like fire. And as the trumpets blast, those prayers are answered. The first six trumpets that blow are trumpets of war, like the shofars that marshaled Israel to battle in the Old Testament. The sounds of the trumpets fling plagues on the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the heavens. These plagues directly echo the plagues of Egypt from the book of Exodus. And yet here, they are falling on Jerusalem, who, through her injustice, has become just like Egypt the city from which she was set free, but it is far worse. Revelation 9. For with trumpet five, it isn't just a plague of locusts. It's a star falling into the abyss to release demonic locusts who sting like scorpions. <laughs> These locust scorpions represent the demonic spirits that had taken up residence in, in, the first, uh, in first century Jerusalem, in Jesus's generation. Jesus came to cast some of these demons out, but he also said that it was going to get worse within his generation. So it would, because in the years leading up to 70 AD, all Judea would boil with mobs attacking one another, self-styled prophets leading uprisings, desperate hunts for food amidst famine, mass murders, and fathers slaughtering their families, according to Josephus, and that's not the worst of it. In the years before 70 AD, Jerusalem would literally become a haunt of demons and every unclean thing. And when trumpet six blows, a horde of horse lions are released to battle the demonic locust scorpions. They cross the Euphrates River important detail because that's the boundary where Assyria, Babylon, and Persia crossed before invading Israel throughout the Old Testament. It's where foreign empires come in to Jerusalem, and now the horse lions cross it, representing the Roman armies in the years leading up to the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They go to battle. The carnage is horrible, and yet Jerusalem does not repent. Repentance has remained an option and a call, but like the Egyptian Pharaoh before her, Jerusalem has hardened her heart. Revelation 10. In the midst of Trumpet 6, the focus shifts. As John watches all of this take place, suddenly an angel descends from heaven to feed him a small version of the Lamb's scroll. Take and eat it, the angel says to John. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And that is the book of Revelation. Revelation is bitter, sweet. It is bitter because of the judgment that it contains, but it is sweet because of the victory of the Lamb that it unveils. The more comfortable your life is, the more it is bitter. The more persecuted you are as a Christian, the sweeter it is. Revelation 11. John begins to prophesy the message of the scroll, which is the rest of the apocalypse. The first thing he sees in this chapter is a condensed version of the whole thing, a mini version of the entire book of Revelation, and it goes like this. John is told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. This represents faithful followers of the Lamb, God's true temple, the church. But John is told, Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. If the church is the true temple... This outer court represents unrepentant Jerusalem, which will be trampled by the Romans. And this, in my view, is one of the clearest statements in the book that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is in view for what other city is the holy city than Jerusalem. What will happen until this destruction? Two witnesses will prophesy in the city. These two witnesses are described as lampstands. The same description Jesus uses to describe what? The churches. There are two of them because in the Bible it is the testimony of not one but two witnesses that proves that something is true or not. The two witnesses represent the faithful witness of the church. That there are two of them means that their testimony is true. Even more so, like prophets, these witnesses breathe out the word of God like fire. They shut the sky like Elijah, and they bring plagues on the earth like in the ministry of Moses. And like the prophets before them, these two witnesses are killed in Jerusalem. Jesus once said it would be wrong for a prophet to be killed outside Jerusalem, because it happens so often. They are killed in Jerusalem, the city where their Lord was crucified. Their murderers celebrate their death... But then God breathes life back into them, the witnesses rise from their feet, then they rise higher and higher to heaven, and then the city falls. All of this is caused for the blowing of the seventh trumpet— Like the silver trumpets that summoned Israel to the tabernacle and temple, this is a trumpet of worship that causes the whole company of heaven to fall on their knees and cry out, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's the hallelujah chorus. And this is the whole of Revelation in miniature. (laughs) The slain lamb and his witnesses are right and true, and they will win by dying. You can kill them, but you can't. And that's halfway through the book of Revelation. Okay? Think we can do the second half? I think we can. Okay. I said that is a condensed version of the whole of Revelation in Revelation 11. Condensed version of the whole thing. Now, John is ready to see what he just saw again, but not in condensed version, but in the cosmic version. Okay? Okay. I'm going to take a drink. Not in condensed version, but in the cosmic version. A great sign appears in heaven. A sign with three characters, three dramatic characters a woman in labor, her child eventually, and a dragon. Can you see them up there in the middle? There's the woman and the dragon. John's seeing this all over the place. The thing I love about this painting is that uh, the, the painter sees John seeing things all over the place. It's like he looks one place and he sees one thing, and he looks another and he sees another, and he's just trying to capture it and write it down in some way that is understandable to us. Anyway, a great sign appears in heaven. You've got a woman in labor, her child eventually, and a dragon. This takes us back to the very beginning of the Bible. All that is wrong with the world, according to the Bible, began when a woman and her husband were lured by a serpent into rebellion against God. Thus the world was unmade. But God promised in that very moment that one day the woman would bear a child who would crush the head of that serpent. Hearing this echo, we see that the woman in John's vision represents the people of God throughout the ages, Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New. John sees how Old Testament Israel labored to give birth to the promised one who would save the world. But her enemy will have none of it. The serpent in the garden has now grown into a dragon whose goal is to sweep Israel away into unbelief, which he does, at least for some. The dragon is most intent, however, on destroying the woman's child, but he cannot. This woman gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, quoting Psalm 2. This is Jesus. Merry Christmas. But the child is immediately caught up to heaven, and this is Jesus' ascension, the moment we saw at the start of the vision. It's the shortest version of Jesus' ministry in the Bible. But we already saw it, so that's okay. Unable to pursue the child any longer, the dragon sets out to pursue the woman who is the Israel of God on earth, the church. The woman flees into the wilderness where God prepares a place for her and nourishes her. Suddenly, John sees a war in heaven, and it's a flashback of sorts where he sees that the victory of Jesus caused an almighty clash in the heavenly places. The result is that Satan, the great dragon, the accuser of humankind, has been thrown down from heaven to earth. No longer can he approach God's throne, as in the book of Job, to accuse God's people day and night. The victory of Jesus has won the complete vindication of God's people, and the dragon, Satan, has been thrown down from heaven to earth. Unable to accuse the woman from the heavenly throne room, Satan now pursues her on earth, but he still cannot win. And so, This ancient serpent stands on the shores of the sea to summon from its watery depths some reinforcement. Revelation 13. The dragon summons a beast from the sea. This is a composite beast drawn from Daniel 7. Like those creatures, the beast represents political power. Political power. The beast from the sea is the power of Rome, marshaled by the dragon to make war on God's people and to conquer them. And seeing this, John says to his listeners, here is a call for endurance and, for f- and faith of the saints. See all this. It is a call to endurance. Then the dragon summons another beast from the land. This beast is characterized by religious language. The land beast makes people worship the sea beast. This beast looks like a lamb, but speaks like a beast. And we remember Jesus' words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, like a lamb, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The beast from the land is a symbol of religious power. Religious power summoned by the dragon intent on making people worship political power. Does that sound familiar from the world we live in? These are potent symbols, and John is seeing the toxic fusion of political power with religious power, specifically religious power that calls the shots on who you should submit to. The sea beast represents Jerusalem at the time of John's writing. More specifically, it is likely that it represents the priesthood of the temple and the high priest, who were very cozy with Rome and depended upon the empire for survival. Remember how when Jesus was brought to trial before Pontius Pilate, the ch- what did the chief priests cry out in the end? Here is your king, and they say, We have
2: no king but Caesar. We have
1: no king but Caesar. That is the beast from the land worshiping the beast from the sea. The toxic fusion of political power with religious power. Now remember, the the saints of God are sealed by God on their foreheads, marking their allegiance to Him. Those who worship the sea beast of Rome also have a mark on their foreheads, marking their thoughts, and their right hand, marking their actions. This is the mark of the beast. It's a contrast to the way the saints are sealed. It's a symbol. And the number 666 calculates to the name of Nero. We can talk about that later. The number 666 calculates to the name of Nero, the emperor of Rome in the time when the apocalypse was given but also applies to any political power to which we are tempted to give our allegiance today. Political power that calls on us to worship and obey it. John is unveiling. The the apocalypse is of the fusion of political power with religious power to call the shots on who you should worship and honor and pay homage to. And these beasts team up to capture, conquer, and kill the people of God on earth. Revelation 14. But suddenly, John sees the same reality, not from earth's perspective, but from heaven's perspective. He sees the slain lamb standing on Mount Zion with all of those who have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. As they are captured, conquered, and killed on earth, these witnesses are brought up to the heavenly Mount Zion where they are given rest. Like the slain lamb, they have conquered by their witness unto death. The full number of the martyrs promised in Revelation 7 has come in, and now the end can come. So some angels show up, and John sees the death of the saints as a great harvest of wheat brought into heaven's storehouses. But he also sees the saints as grapes, the fruit of the vine. This is, after all, the image used throughout the Bible for Israel and for Jesus' disciples. I am the vine, you are the branches. In their faithfulness to Jesus unto death, the saints have ripened to fruitfulness. And what do you do with ripe grapes? You make wine. And this is just what God does. In the winepress of His wrath, from the fruitful grapes of the saints, God makes wine. That will fill the bowls of his wrath, which will be poured out on the destroyers of the earth, on the land beast and the sea beast, poured out on Jerusalem and eventually Rome. Revelation 15 to 16. As the throne room vision comes to a close, the angels pour out the the first four bowls of God's wrath onto the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the sun. But then the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the sea beast, which plunges his kingdom into darkness. This happened in AD 68 when Nero, the one whose number is 666, committed suicide. The power vacuum that that left tore the empire apart and led to the year of four emperors in AD 69, far worse than our year of four prime ministers. Um, Tacitus describes this time as one of worldwide convulsions, worldwide convulsions, convulsions that lead to the sixth bowl and the battle of Armageddon. Now, despite being the only thing people know about Revelation, Armageddon just means mountain of Megiddo. It's a place, it's a plain actually, where Israel fought battles all throughout the Old Testament. There is nothing special about this place other than that it is a good place to stage a battle. A battle which we never quite see. Instead, the seventh angel pours out his bowl and says, it is done. A giant earthquake comes and cities fall and it really does come for everybody. The sea beast of Rome will be shaken by the suicide of Nero and the year of the four emperors. The land beast represented by Jerusalem will fall completely in 70 AD. All of these institutions and cities that seemed eternal will suddenly appear suddenly fragile and able to fall at any moment. And all of this, Revelation says, is the just judgment of the lamb on the throne. And thus, the throne room vision that spans Revelation 4-16 to ends. It's been a long one. But there is yet more to be unveiled, more of the same reality, but seen from another angle. Revelation 17. Vision 3. In the wilderness, the harlot unveiled. Amidst the earthquake of the seventh bowl, an angel comes and carries John away in the spirit, there's your cue that there's another vision, carries him away in the spirit from the throne room of God into a wilderness, a desert. It's almost as if he's about to see things that are are so seedy that you shouldn't see them from the throne room of God. And there John glimpses the sea beast once again, the beast that represents the political power of the Roman Empire. But that's not what he's been taken into the wilderness to see this time. The unveiling is of a woman astride the beast. She is a harlot. In her hand is a golden cup of wine filled with the same liquid as the bowls of God's wrath poured out on the earth. The blood of the saints. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That cup is her judgment, and she's enjoying it. There's an image of what judgment is like. The harlot is drunk with this blood, and on her forehead is her name, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. And John has been brought to the wilderness to see this woman judged and thrown down. The woman is the Jerusalem of John's day, unveiled here not as a beast from the land, but as a harlot uh, called Babylon. Called to be the bride of God, Jerusalem has sought another husband in Rome. We have no king but Caesar. The ruling class is declaring that Rome calls the shots for them. And in this alliance with the sea beast, Jerusalem has become an idolatrous and bloodthirsty city devoted to self-worship and economic exploitation. A dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every unclean spirit. Jesus is never harder on anyone but his own people, and the Jerusalem of of his day comes in really bad. In the wilderness, John sees Jerusalem unmasked as their own worst enemy, Babylon. And if there is any justice in the world, Babylon must fall. Revelation 18. The evil of Jerusalem is unmasked here as Babylon. It is unmasked in order to be condemned, and it is condemned in order to be judged. Babylon falls as the horns of the sea beast turn on her and tear her to shreds, just as Rome turned on Jerusalem in the conflict that ended in 70 AD. Revelation 19 the saints and martyrs see the destruction of Babylon and they go ballistic, (laughs) praising God that he has finally avenged the blood of the saints. That is their praise. They see God's vengeance for the innocent blood of the saints that have been shed. Remember the question at the heart of the book back in Revelation 6. O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer is not long, not long, because it would happen in 70 AD when harlot Jerusalem, the city that killed the prophets, fell to the hands of the Romans. But who has accomplished it? Who is using these events of history as the instrument of his perfect justice? The one who originally rode out from heaven, conquering and to conquer when that first seal was cracked. Now heaven opens and he appears again. It is Jesus Christ, faithful and true, King of kings and Lord of lords, who slays his enemies with the sword of his word. With his word he foretold the destruction of Jerusalem in his earthly ministry. And by his word, it is done. The appearance of Jesus on a white horse is not his second coming at the end of history. That will come later in the book. Here, it is the bookend that marks with finality the end of the judgment that Revelation is primarily concerned with, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Revelation 20, because of the Lamb's victory, the dragon, Satan, who earlier fell from heaven to earth, now falls even further into the bottomless pit so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. He is bound there for a thousand years. Now, this is called the millennium, and it's a symbolic period representing a long time. This a thousand years, I think, began with the first coming of Jesus in the first century and will extend to his second coming at the end of history. We are in this symbolic time period now, the time where Satan is bound, unable to stop the message of the kingdom of God from reaching the ends of the earth. The only reason that the Gospels can take root in all the far-flung places of the world is because Satan is bound, albeit with a long chain. But the point of the millennium is not primarily the binding of Satan. The point of the millennium is the victory of the saints. Speculation about the millennium is a big distraction because the point of it, the point of this time period, is, that the, uh, is the victory promised to the people this apocalypse was rig- originally written to. The victory promised to them. Because these witnesses, these martyrs, not only live eternally during the millennium, they are given thrones to reign with Jesus Christ. And we see in Apocalypse, we see that those whom the beast put to death are those who will truly live. That's the unveiling. Those who contested the beast's right to rule and suffered for it and said, I will not bow to you. I will not listen to your demands. They are the ones who in the end will rule as universally as the beast did and for much longer, a thousand years. And then, to demonstrate that their triumph in Jesus can never be reversed. The dragon is given one last chance to deceive the nations, but it is entirely fruitless. The devil himself is thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet, and there they remain day and night forever and ever. No one who opposes the saints will win at any time in history ever. We can expect a future day A future moment when all the forces of evil will not simply be bound with a long chain, but completely destroyed forever. And this will be the prelude to what all Christians affirm about the end times. That Jesus Christ, the one seated at the right hand of the Father, will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. And that's what Revelation 20 shows. Revelation 21, we're nearly there. In that day, the world as it is now, this world groaning under the dominion of sin and death, will pass away. The just judgment of Jesus Christ will purify the world like fire purifies gold, and the old will give way to a new heaven and a new earth. With the old Jerusalem condemned and destroyed, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, will one day descend from God to renew the whole of creation, bringing into being a world with no tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. John sees all of this, and the voice from the throne booms in his ears, saying, Behold, I am making all things new. It is done. The one who conquers will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children." And that is the end of history. But it's not the end of Revelation. Not the end of the Apocalypse. Because now an angel taps John on the shoulder, maybe, (laughs) and says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. To which John could have said, isn't that what I'm seeing? Aren't you showing me that right now? In a sense, yes. But let's think for a minute. The new Jerusalem is a city. The city is a bride. But who is the bride of the Lamb? Who is the bride of the Lamb? The church. While we await the future reality of the new Jerusalem fully coming to earth, its glory is a reality in the church now. We are, the, the church is the new Jerusalem on earth because the new Jerusalem is the bride. Hence why the unveiling of the bride is the destination of revelation. The unveiling of the church now. Vision four. On a mountain, the bride unveiled. And he carried me away in the spirit to a, great high, to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So, As Moses was called to a mountaintop to receive the blueprint for the tabernacle on earth, John is called to a mountain to receive the blueprint for the church on earth. As an unveiling of the bride, what John sees is not so much a glimpse of a future heaven, but a picture of the church now, an allegorical picture of the church now. The church is a city where the testimony of the apostles provides an unshakable foundation of truth and in which every follower of Jesus is a living stone. It is a diverse place where the light of God is refracted through every saint as through the rarest of jewels. It is an inclusive place where the gates are always open, and yet it is a holy place where nothing evil can comfortably dwell. It is the city where the slain lamb provides the light by which the nations of the world are called to walk, a light that shines even in the darkest of places and the darkest of ages. And as a blueprint of the church, what John sees is an idealized sketch, but it is a real one, nevertheless. Whenever two or three gather in the name of the risen lamb, in Ephesus or Laodicea, in London, or in Gretem, the new Jerusalem descends in that place. Tiny bit. (laughs) And it will continue to descend over the course of the history of the church until that descent is completed in the arrival of the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 22. 500 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, the Lord showed the prophet Ezekiel a new temple in a new Jerusalem where Jews and Gentiles would worship God together. The name of the new city was the Lord is there. Water flowed out from that altar in that temple, making the land flourish like the Garden of Eden. And in the final chapter of the apocalypse, which is where we are right now, (laughs) John sees the church as that true temple, the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, A renewed Eden where all nations are called to come and drink from the water of life and eat from the tree of life. A place where in our lives and relationships we begin to glimpse the face of God in Jesus Christ. A city lit by the light of God that no amount of darkness can ever overcome, no matter how many beastly empires might rise and fall. And until the day when Christ returns... The Apostle John calls everyone who hears this apocalypse to worship the slain and risen Lamb. Devote yourself to Him and to obey the words of this prophecy, conquering as we follow the Lamb. We pay attention to his voice speaking to us through John and through the other apostles. And we call everyone who is thirsty for eternity to come drink from the water of life without price that is flowing out of the open doors of the church. And as the book comes to an end, we find that John has seen a glimpse behind the scenes of history to see what's really going on in the events of his time and place. He is also transported in vision into the final future of the world so that he can see the present from the perspective of its final outcome. To quote Richard Baucom again, The old Jerusalem has fallen, the harlot cast down. The new Jerusalem will come fully one day at the end of history after Jesus has come to judge the living and the dead. But it is present in the world even now, the perfect bride of the Lamb who was slain. And that is the apocalypse in just over an hour. <laughs> 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 um,
2: Philip, thank you once again for that. Yeah. Um, that was very stimulating, very engaging. Um, as a historian, or as someone, very interested in history, and in that period of history, mm. I love the emphasis on, you know, yeah. the first century A.D. and yeah. um, Rome and Jerusalem. Um, and I was, but I was just wondering um, this particular reading that you've offered of Revelation, yeah. where it's the main focus is that time and yeah. that generation. I was just thinking, um, and obviously a little bit is also about yeah. now and the future. You brought that out as well, yeah. but I was wondering about. A lot of it, the bulk of it, seemed to be emphasizing events a long time ago. Now, yeah. And I was just thinking, uh, what would you say about its its preciousness to us now? I think yeah. you alluded to it a little bit at the beginning. Yeah. Wherever, you, wherever Christians are persecuted, it will be precious. Yeah.
1: I you think. Talk a bit more about. That? In one way, you could you could ask that question about the whole of the New Testament and the whole of the Bible. Like, it's about people in the past. Um, And it's written to people in the past, and we're reading it in the present to find out what it meant to them and what it can mean to us. And so what you're seeing in Revelation is a letter written to real people in a real time, in a real place, for whom the time of these circumstances is near and soon. John says it again and again and again. And they were going to face a circumstance in which political power and religious power were going to fuse together in a horrific, in a horrific way, and which their own lives would be at stake. In our own situation right now, we don't face it to that much of a degree. But you see the fusion of political power and religious power in beastly ways all throughout history and all throughout the world, even right now. And so Revelation remains a call to us toward, to martyrdom. And by martyrdom, it's not necessarily meaning like being killed for your faith. Martyrdom is a, a way of life that shows that neither yourself nor religious or political power is ultimate. So it's not my choices that are, it's not who I want to be that is ultimate, and it's not who they want me to be. It's who the lamb who, that was slain, it is what the lamb who was slain calls me to. And any choice that is made from that basis is a, um, is a choice toward what this book calls being a witness. One of the interesting things about Revelation in Greek is that the word witness is martyr. So our English word martyr um, comes from the Greek word martus, and it's translated diversely in translation of, of res- Revelation. Um, so you get at the beginning, in the passage I put on your sheet, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. That is Jesus Christ, the faithful martus. And then the, the saints and martyrs later on, it's the same word, martyria, martus. And so that, con- that concept of witness to the Lamb, I think, remains, um, is the key element of revelation for all generations of Christians. A a life that is a life of witness to the authority, the loving authority of the slain lamb. So I think that's that that's kind of the key element for all Christians in all times.
2: And so the specific events that it focuses on, yeah, for much of the book, yeah, the, the between thirty and seventy AD or so,
1: mostly between sixty four and seventy AD, sixty four and yeah. seventy AD, I think
2: they would still, it's still highly relevant for everyone since then because those same processes have continued on, the, the political and religious powers yeah, fusing and yeah. squeezing Christians in the middle and yeah. the need to continue to witness in the face of, we think of the Soviet Union.
1: Right? Yeah, absolutely. I
2: mean, I know Luther um, Luther that, even I mean, called the papacy um, the beast because he saw it as this fusion of political and religious power in which,
1: and at, at that time, at that time he was on to something because he saw, that he saw the reality to which Revelation was pointing, which is the fusion of political and religious power, and he chose to live a life of witness in the midst of that. Um, he didn't die for his faith, but he almost did, um, and that was the, the way he chose to walk in the midst of that. He, he, was, he was displaying in that moment the, the kind of life that Revelation calls all Christians to. Thank
2: you, Philip. Yeah. Thank you. We have a question here. Yeah. You thank you
3: very much. Yeah. Um, yes, as I said, talk of course. And, uh, thank <coughs> you so much. Yeah,
1: you're welcome.
3: Um, yeah. <laughs> How do you frame this in in a, in a context where where for tens of millions of Christians
4: yeah
3: see this and in interpret it differently? Yeah. Um, and see it as a, you know, as, as you presented it, it's yeah. as, um, as an academic, that I would see that as the right interpretation, as something to be reassuring and hopeful yeah. for the world and for the for the present. Yeah. Um, but for those tens of millions who see it, so who will interpret it as a sort of literal yeah. uh, figuration of what will happen in the future, yeah, yeah. and use it as such, yeah. Um, there was an—I can't remember which academic—it was who labelled Revelation as the most dangerous book in
4: history. Yeah, for that Precisely reason. For that reason. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and it literally does have a profound political impact now. Yes. By people who want to literally make these things happen. Yes. To bring about the end of the world. Yeah. As see it. To make the, yeah their interpretation
1: um, of and, these things come company.
3: If I was being really provocative. <laughs> Um, I say this cautiously and with, with Sun Chi. Yeah. You know, some of the things that the middle of Revelation yes. puts out yeah. is very similar to the Wahhabi ideology out of uh-huh. which ISIS comes. Yes. You know, you could say out that same ideology of the killing of all evil and, and massacre so that right could
4: yes. come. Yeah.
3: There's an extremism. Yes. And violence. Yeah which is reflected in other extremist forms. I'm not suggesting that's what it, it is. Yeah. Well, I believe it is. Yeah. But how do we, how does the church, has the church failed yeah. in framing this? Have we ignored it too much? Yeah. Have we failed to teach it? Yeah. And how do we as Christians um, present this message of hope yeah. and reassurance yeah. rather than a message of hell and damnation
1: of violence and murder, yeah. which many Christians... Yeah, yes. Yeah, I, the, so the, the question is, um, ten, tens of millions of other Christians take a very different view of Revelation than the one I, than the one I just laid out. And I'm, I'm intimately, intimately familiar with, with those views. Um, and for around 10 years of my life, I stayed away from the Book of Revelation because that's what I, I thought it was about, and it terrified me. It was only then, in coming back to it after a long time, and particularly, um, particularly reading those first few verses, soon, the time uh, this is happening soon. The time is near. And I thought something something is off here, um, and I think it is. It is a close reading like that that is that is very helpful. Um, I, I used to be very upset about how wrong I thought everyone was about Revelation. And then I just decided I'm, for my part, I'm just going to talk about it differently. (laughs) And I'm going to, I'm going to share what I think it is saying and not do it in a, uh, in an angry way, um, because. And I'm going to do it in as hopeful a way as possible. And as far as the history of those views, it's very interesting to me. And I'm not really sure why the Lord did this. But there are no commentaries on Revelation from the first two centuries of the church. We just don't have them. They've never been found. And I've wondered why. Um, And I wonder if 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 you might get more of something like this if we had found them. But that gap was left for some reason. And I think that that gap of testimony about what was going on or about what, what the nearness of the events might mean and all those types of things, um, I wonder if it opened up the space for speculation to an undue degree. Um, and then in the 19th century... You got a school of interpretation of Revelation beginning um, called dispensationalism, which became very prominent in the United States. It began in Northern Ireland um, through a Church of Ireland minister named John Nelson Darby. Interestingly, he was he was very concerned with the imperialism of the British Empire. And he and so in a way he had his take on empire was very modern and progressive. In some ways. Um, but he, he used that to say, all right, tr- the, the, the British Empire, Church of England, the church is seeking worldly power and in sh- to shape the world. That's not what it's about. The church is about spirit- spiritual things. And so he made this divide between the earthly and the spiritual, which led to a way of understanding the whole Bible that said the story of the Bible is about God's dealing with his earthly people, the people of Israel, but the church is his spiritual people who have nothing to do with this earth. And so you're left with a um, a sense of the spiritual nature of the church having nothing to do with earthly concerns, and therefore an interpretation of Revelation that sees the church leaving, leaving the concerns of this world to go to heaven, away from, away from this earth, and letting all the carnage happen on the earth. There are a lot of things, other, uh, other things um, entailed with that view of things, um, but it, it left us with a, a very unearthed concept of revelation, I think, that has, that has done us well. Um, and I could talk about the details of that view, but I've, I've chosen for my part to just start speaking about it differently and um, maybe to not get angry if people get angry at me <laughs> so that's that's how I'm going with it yeah
3: who on earth was John talking to or writing to at the time but did they yeah an ordinary congregation understand mm. what he was talking about or was he did he did they understand the, the symbolism that he was using yeah the second thing is I've read that he wrote in this fashion it in order that the the Roman authorities wouldn't understand what he was saying.
1: Hmm. Okay, so who were the churches that John was writing to, and um, did he write in a cryptic fashion um, to keep out of the eyes of authorities or something like that? So, it's interesting. Sometimes people take a very spiritual, spiritualized view of the book of Revelation, and they, and they say that the seven churches represent different, kind of, different kinds of churches throughout history that will come down the line. Um, and it's that kind of stuff, and I'm just, <laughs> when, when that happens, I'm like, I guess I'm too much of a literalist, because that, I look at the map, and I'm like, John's, John says he's on Patmos which is just a few miles off from the place where he was writing, the, the people he's writing to, and he's even constructed the letter so that it goes around clockwise so that the mail won't get mixed up.
4: Um,
1: so, I mean, this is the earth circumstances. He has written one copy of this letter, right? On Patmos. He's going to get it somehow first to Ephesus, this one copy. They're, they're going to... okay. It'll be read aloud to the congregation there, um, and the first verses of revelation say, "Blessed is the one who reads the prophecy uh, uh, who reads aloud the prophecy of this book, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. That's been spiritualized as well to say that like ooh, if you read reading aloud, this special book of the Bible has a special blessing attached to it, but like okay um it, in Most people in these churches couldn't read. The only access they have to the testimony of the apostles is somebody reading it aloud. So the letter's going to get there. Some fellow or woman is going to read it out loud to them. And that person who reads it aloud is going to be especially blessed because they are going to be the mouthpiece for this amazing thing. But the people who listen to it will be just as blessed if they Hear it, and they keep what is written in it. They they do what is written in it. Do what Jesus is saying. Follow the Lamb. Conquer through following Him. So I th- I think yeah, people nor- normal everyday people were hearing this. Uh, very few of them could read, but what they did when they gathered was that they heard the testimony of the apostles read to them by someone who could, and that's what that's what's happening as these letters are received. Regarding the uh, are things coded so that um, so that people could not. Uh, you know, understand what they were talking or about. Roman authorities. Roman authorities or something like that. I do think this is the, um, th- this is the key to uh, the, the 666 and the mark of the beast, or this is one aspect that's going on there. Let me just get my um, text of Revelation here. So this, this happens in Revelation 13, um, and it's very interestingly written. So he's talking about the, the, the beast from the sea, which I think is Rome, and then he says um, in 1318, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Which we're like, what? what? But he's assuming think about this. This is written to normal people. And he's telling them, this calls for wisdom. Let the one, all of y'all in Smyrna and in Ephesus understand, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it's the number of a man. You can do this. Calculate it. So it's assuming that there's something they'd be able to do. Interestingly, so in the ruins of Pompeii, there's an inscription that reads, I love her whose number is 545. So it's not her phone number, um, because that wasn't a thing. Um, it's, it's called, it's called tria, and it's a way of calculating the number of people's names based on the numerical value of the letters. So when we want to spell a number, we write, um, we write it out. So three is T-H-R-E-E, get it? But you didn't do this in Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. They use their letters for numbers. So alpha is represented by the numerical value of one, yeah? And it was very common to calculate the number of certain, someone's name as a, as a little game. So John is inviting his readers in a way, his, he thinks everybody can do this, yeah? Um, because this is just what, you know, I love her whose number is 545 is something that teenagers wrote in the bathroom cell. Um, so here it is. Um, so he's inviting his readers to transliterate the Greek name Nero Caesar, into the Hebrew, Neron-Kaiser, because Hebrew doesn't have vowels. Um, so once you add the vowel markings, you get Neron-Kaiser, which gets you the number 666. So he's assuming that people can do this if they think about it a bit. So he, and, and so I think this is a way of hiding. It's not hiding too much, but you do have to have a knowledge of Hebrew, which maybe not all the Roman authorities would have. I um, mean you have to work with that. So it's very clever in some ways. Um and one of the one of the key reasons that um it can well no I won't go there, that's too much. Um but yeah, I think I think he's hiding he, that he is hiding something, but not too much so that his his readers like can't like understand. Slang or Maybe so.
2: <laughs> like rhyming slang, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Any other yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
2: Revelation. Do you think there's any room at all for them giving you uh, giving the church signs that might indicate that Jesus is soon to return, or is that completely missing the point of what both those authors, Jesus and Paul, are exactly, But what they're trying to achieve, you're you're very keen to say Mm. about A.D.
1: seventy.
4: Yeah. Is there any room left over for us to
1: think, oh, what's happening? Yeah. Is this coming back? I. So I, I think Jesus was very concerned to show his disciples signs that the cataclysm of AD 70 was going to take place soon. So much so that he says, when you, when you see all this happening, flee to the mountains. Go away when you see it all happening. Which is, in a time of war and cataclysm, that's the exact opposite thing you should do. So if, if, an, if you see an army coming toward a city... You should not flee to the mountains. <laughs> that's the absolute worst thing that you can do. You should go inside the walls of the city where you are protected. But he's telling his disciples, do the exact opposite thing. And there is testimony of people who did this. They saw it coming, and they, and they fled the city, and they survived at a fortress called Pella. So I think he is very concerned that people, um, that, that, that people in his day uh, know about this thing that's coming. I, I'm at a point where I, I don't think that we can know anything about signs of the second coming. Um, I think that most of the stuff about signs in the Bible refers to the cataclysm that Jesus was, um, was referring to. And I think that when we choose to go the way of signs, we often end up misinterpreting them. Um, and when we misinterpret them, It's actually quite a dire thing because the biblical record would say false prophecy is a very big deal to say that this is that this is happening or it will happen this way. And then it doesn't. There's a whole there are generations of people who have been predicting the end like this um, and they've been wrong every time. And then they're comfortable to just change their to just shift a bit. And so they get everyone whipped up into a frenzy about when it's going to happen, and then they shift again when it doesn't happen. And in, in the Old Testament, the punishment for that is death. It's a very serious thing. Um, and I, th- I think that Jesus, well, no, I, I confess with all my heart that Jesus is a true prophet, and that he predicted, he prophesied these things, and that they happened. And that is one reason why we can trust him completely. Um, I think that I think we do know about what will happen in the future, the ju- the, the bodily return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of um, the judgment of the world. But I don't think we're given signs, and I don't think we're given things to look for. But we're told to be ready. <laughs> so.
2: In fact, I would say the Bible militates against, as you said, militates against trying to predict those it things.
4: It would seem to.
2: And Jesus himself says that <coughs> that it will come like a thief in the night. Mm-hmm. It will be like a thief coming in the night, and, and only the Father knows the day and the hour, and he doesn't even know, as the Son, which would seem to really fly in the face of people thinking the Bible's full of all these signs of prophecy. You know, the weekend before it happens, is going to be all these signs of it. That I d- completely contradicts
1: Jesus. I, I, re- I read something about this where the re- a response to that has been, but he didn't tell you not to talk about the year.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that even works.
1: <laughs> no, but that, that's been a serious respon- a serious response to it at times. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think just because this, this came be to like people were just asking. Would you care to expound on the
2: existence of other views? I myself say, yeah. a literal pre tribulation yeah. millennial view. Mm. I found your view diminishes the global nature of the events of Revelation, yeah. where an estimated two thirds of the world population is killed and the seas are turned to blood. Yeah. And it says the 144,000 are named as 12,000 from each tribe except
4: Dan, mm. i.e.,
1: yeah. Um, so there are four. There are four main views of the Book of Revelation, which this um, book, by um, mercifully compiled by Steve Greg, um, lays out. And actually, I can put them. I'll put them on the screen here, um, with a very helpful, a very helpful graph. Um, I gave you what is called the preterist view, preterist, partial preterist view. Which would say that um, most of the events that revelation is talking about happened in the in the first century. Um, that's that's one view. Um, the view that the commenter was just describing is the futurist view, which says that the bulk of revelation is going to happen sometime in the future. That view often um, says that, uh, of course, John is being written to in the first century. Of course, Jesus is dictating these seven letters in the the first century. But once John comes into the heavenly throne room, in that second vision, we are in the far future. And we are viewing things that will take place in the the prelude to, to the end of all things. That's the futurist view. The historicist view would say that Revelation is showing us things that are playing out all through the course of history. So once you get into, in a chronological way, so you start in the throne room and you are there in the first century, but as you go through the rest of the book, you are moving gradually um, toward the end, so much so that we are right now somewhere in the midst of it. Don't quite know where, but we're somewhere in the midst of it. That's the historicist view. But then there is the idealist view, which would say that Revelation is showing us kind of figures and types and patterns that happen all, through, all throughout history, um, and that you're, you're seeing various types of things that are happening at different points of time leading, leading up to obviously, the, the return of Jesus in the end. Those are, those are kind of the four main camps. I, Steve Greg helpfully, I wish I had a diagram of this, he helpfully illustrates it with four hourglasses. <laughs> so in the, in the preterist hour, hourglass, most of the sand is, uh, is uh, in the bottom. You know, it's come to the bottom. In the futurist hourglass, all of the sand is mostly still in the top of the hourglass, yeah? In the historicist hourglass, um, kind of one third of the sand is left at the top but it's all kind of it, it's, the rest has come down and then in the idealist hourglass <laughs> the whole hourglass is full of sand <laughs> so I, I, think that's a, I think that's a helpful way um, and there, there were two other comments there I'm going to address one um, yeah, throughout, throughout Revelation you get this language of this uh, great cataclysm is coming upon the earth the earth. In Greek, geis,
2: the earth, Ge or Gaia.
1: Yeah, can also be the land. So it's it could be, it, it, the same word can be translate, the, translated the earth, which we conceptualize as the globe, but the same term can be used to refer to a portion of the earth, the land, as in the land of Israel or the land of Jerusalem. I think given the focus of some things, it could be wiser to translate earth as land and that these are things coming upon the land. Now with the 144,000, that's a really interesting one. Um, let me just find something here. With the 144,000, you get the um, kind of roll call there of, of everyone. And um, the thing I think is very important about that is that it is a, um, it's a military number. Just finding something here. Oh yeah, that was chapter, that's chapter seven. Yeah, so if you go to Numbers 31, Numbers 31, this is Old Testament in the Pentateuch, Numbers 31, verses one through five, you get this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterwards you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe 12,000 armed for war. So you got this military, kind of military measurement. So a basic military unit in ancient Israel was um, 1,000 men, called a Kiliad. But if you take the number of tribes, which is 12, and square that number to completion, you get 144. Multiply that by 1,000, and you have a symbolic number for all the hosts of Israel, 144,000. And this is an army, but it's an army of martyrs. So I think that the important thing is not so much that this people are Jewish, but that John is using this Old Testament way of forming an army, and that is the important part of the symbol. So it's less that they are Jewish than that they are a complete army, as complete as complete can be with the squared number times 12 and all that. Um, Now there's an interesting pattern that happens right after that. Remember that in the beginning of Revelation, John hears a voice like a trumpet um, telling him to write, and then he turns to see the voice, and he sees Jesus. So he expects a trumpet player, but what he actually sees is Jesus. The trumpet and Jesus were the same thing. He turned and looked and saw that it was Jesus the same thing happens when John sees um, the when John sees the 144,000. So he sees this 144,000 from all the tribes and it feels very very Jewish but then he turns to look to them and it's an innumerable number from every tribe, nation, and language and we're being led to see through his kind of artistry that this is the same thing. The 144,000 are the innumerable number. The point of the one hundred forty-four thousand was to show you that it's an army, not necessarily that it's Jewish, but that it was a complete army, and it represents everyone who is faithful to the Lamb. That's the way I would take that. Um, uh, the, the way I would take that um, part of the of the book. So that's that's an attempt to answer to answer those questions from from my point of view. So, yeah. I would
2: also add that the church is the new Israel. So Israel is often used in the Bible to refer to the church, to the God's new covenant people after Christ has come and inaugurated a new covenant. Israel grow, expands beyond his, the original Israel to include anyone who believes in Jesus, the new Israel. So it, it's not necessarily, even when the language of Israel is used in the New Testament, it's not necessarily meaning the mm. Jews, Israel often it's meaning.
1: Yeah. John, uh, yeah, pa- Paul has this remarkable phrase at the end of Galatians, where he talks about the church as the Israel of God, and that that is a remarkable phrase coming from a kind of dyed-in-the-wool Pharisee um, that he would that he would describe this new this new community from every nation tribe this uncircumcised new community yes. as the Israel of God. That is an absolutely remarkable reality. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing that I do want to say with uh, uh, that uh, kind of has to be said, I was going to put it in there, is that you have to read um, Revelation. And this is what I was doing kind of behind the scenes the whole time. You have to read the, uh, the Revelation through Old Testament glasses. And if you don't, it'll be a bit like reading Harry Potter starting at book seven. Um, so you'll, you'll dive in and you'll be like, what's a horcrux? Um Who's Voldemort? How did his soul get into these pieces that these kids have to find? And they're they're traveling through worlds like what? And if you tried to interpret it, just oh sorry, Joel. Um, Sorry. Um, Yeah, I didn't realize that. Um, Anyway, but if you. You will only understand. So if you try to just read that, you will be very confused, even though you've, you've read it all. <laughs> um, but if you know books one through six, you will come to it with, the, with that lens, and you'll understand it better. Revelation is like that with the Old Testament. If you are not seeing everything through Old Testament glasses, you're going to be, get very confused and very, uh, and, and very scared very quickly. There are scary parts, rightly so. But you, you need to read with the Old Testament glasses. Every time you have a question about Revelation, it should be, okay, what, is, what am I being drawn to to the Old Testament? So the 144,000, you're being drawn to the, the roll call of the army in, in, in Numbers. Um, and a variety of other things. And that's where commentators are extremely helpful. Generations and generations of commentators who have been reading Revelation with Old Testament glasses. I've filled a table of, with books um, on the front here if you want to um, introduce yourself to some of them. So, Yeah, Houston. What do you think about the question of dating the text Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the broad spectrum of yeah. on the dating of it. And yeah. does it really does it matter also? Like if yeah. if it happened to have been written after uh the siege of the temple and everything, maybe it's still relevant or yeah. 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 Uh, I'm obviously convinced of an early date for revelation, um, which is um actually a minority opinion among scholars. Um but when when people look at Revelation and talk about dating, they talk about internal evidence and external evidence. So internal evidence is things you see from the from what's in the book about what the date of its authorship could be, and external evidence is what we can know about historical circumstances surrounding surrounding that. Um, and so there's a, a camp that would say that would have an earlier date, so in the early to mid 60s before the fall of Jerusalem. And then there's a camp that would be in the later date, um, during the reign of Domitian, which comes uh, a few decades after. Um, And I think the evidence is very good for the the earlier date for some internal reasons, particularly um, the identification of Nero as the the, the beastly, you know, as the one whose number is 666 and that being such an obvious thing, um, linking it to that time. And also the whole thing about the the beast's kingdom being plunged into darkness when the sixth bowl is poured out, and that really being resonant with what happened to Rome when Nero committed suicide. I think that's those are important internal things. Also the fact that in the kind of summary vision with the two witnesses, um, the temple is still standing there, um, and there's the description of this is the holy city, the city where their Lord was crucified. So th- those are some internal reasons that I, that I take. Externally, one of, the, one of the big things that it, people use to refer to the later date is, I think it is, um, it's not Pliny, where's that Steve Gregg book? Basically, there's the testimony of one of the church fathers quoting something about this. Yeah, this is Irenaeus. Who basically says that um, he refers to John, Irenaeus does, and he would say, um, he's talking about the Antichrist, and he says, for if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by John who held the apocalyptic vision, for that was seen no very long time since, but almost in our day toward the end of Domitian's reign. So he's basically saying, you're wondering who the, who the beast is. You should ask John because he saw that vision in our day toward the end of Domitian's reign. And so people take that to, to, as obvious evidence. Like, th- this is one of the church fathers saying that John was alive. You should go ask him. And that the events of his apocalypse took place in, during Domitian's reign, not Nero's. But the problem is that we have all of, we have that, we don't have that in the original language, and some different work has, some work has been done on it to show that you could just as easily translate that line um, that, that many people think refers to the vision, for the vision was seen no very long time ago. It could just as easily be translated that John was seen no very long time ago. Um, so it really changes it. It changes it from the vision was seen during the time of uh, Domitian to John himself was seen at that time. So these are the tricky scholarly weeds that people get into. Um, But I'm I'm convinced, given mainly the weight of the internal evidence, that there's an earlier date going on. But there are good interpreters who take the other side too. Did you have a follow-up? To begin with, and so that can't possibly be hmm. it. Versus if you believe that a miracle could be possible, then maybe it is. Yeah. yeah. My the other question involving that was just it seemed like you were saying at the start that John's gospel and revelation are like companion pieces to each other. Do you think they were written that way? I do. Yeah, I do. I, I believe they were written by the same person. They include a lot of the same symbolism bridal symbolism, the wedding at Cana, um, and um, the, the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, um, so many other things. There's a remarkable, uh, I put on your sheet, there, there's a remarkable commentary on Revelation, it's a two-volume doorstop by Peter, by Peter Lightheart um, that will cost you 80 pounds per volume, um, so pray for a paperback before the Lord comes. <laughs> um, and he he's really convinced that it's the same John, and he's finding echoes everywhere, and it's really quite a beautiful thing. So, but
3: is this the same John as the close man of Jesus?
1: That I mean in that, your that that's in my opinion, yeah. John, who is the disciple of Jesus, who wrote the Gospel of John, who also wrote the letters of John one, two, and three in the New Testament, and who also wrote Revelation. Yeah, <laughs> and he was beloved of Jesus.
4: Ian,
0: um, you talked about the uh, demise of Satan. Yeah. Um, from what think, right, like three states, from, from heaven heaven, yeah. earth, and then down into the abyss. Yeah. And you linked the final state with the uh, millennia, essentially the period that we're in
1: now. Yes, it's kind of the second. The, it's the second of those falls. I would say that right right now he is in. Uh, <laughs> He is in the bottomless pit, bound with a long chain. Yes. Yeah. So
0: I was wondering if you could just elaborate a bit more. I, what, what caught my, my attention was mm. we, we've, we've moved from Satan having an awful lot of power chain. to being bound, but yeah. on a long chain. Yeah. So it seems that we're in the best position because Satan isn't completely released. Hallelujah. Yeah. Is that a concept that's even... Worth
1: thinking on? Is that, is that I think so yeah, yeah. so it, it's um, it specifically says in in Revelation 20 that he's bound so that he may not deceive the nations anymore so the con- conclusion is that before he was bound he could deceive the nations in quite strong ways to which someone would say well he still deceives the nations now uh, how how is he bound and my response to that would be, in the time before he was bound, the message of God's work on earth was not spreading all across the world. It was limited to one nation. And in fact, that nation was woefully deficient in its ability to be faithful to God and shine his light. <laughs> um, and the, the nations remained deceived because the, because the light of God was not shining as it should. But now, since his binding, which I correlate to Jesus' speaking about binding the strong man and plundering his goods in the Gospels, um, Satan is the strong man who Jesus has come to bind and plunder his goods so that he cannot deceive the nations anymore. And so, with him bound... The gospel message has gone out as Acts shows to us from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it is flourishing all over the world in a way that it was not before Satan was bound. And it can only do that because he is bound. And one day he will be destroyed. He's still, there is still a certain amount of power that he has because he is not destroyed. Um, but it is not nearly as much power as before he was bound. So that's that's the way I tend to look at that. Okay.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Yeah.
0: Is there a final question or comment? <laughs> yeah. How would you obviously organizations like Golden Doors who deal with particular Christians to say that uh, that he's bound to them yeah. who are in tremendous persecution and it's alright in in the West. Mm-hmm. Right? Costs them a lot. Yeah. These sort of discussions, but in some parts of the world, of course, it's it's death. Yeah. And to say to them, you we're know, not really bound, it is difficult, say so
1: the least. Um. I mean, saying anything hopeful is difficult in those situations.
0: Yeah.
1: No. Yeah. I I think you would want to get to the place where that could be a that could be a hopeful message which would only come alongside the message of Jesus and his power to deliver. Um, the fact that G- the power the power of Christ to deliver and the message of that deliverance can come to a person living under the domain of darkness is a sign that Satan is bound. That that message was can... yeah re- I the
0: opposite, where, yeah. where the whole thing about Jesus' message on mm. the Seven is yeah. it's quite different. It's all about... Um, that you you're taking the cross, you're gonna you're to suffer. Mm. You're standing out. Mm. It's nothing to do with second being bound. It's about the fact that if you follow Jesus, it's gonna cross.
1: Yeah. But that's the importance of the of of the apocalypse in many ways uh, as an unveiling. Is that. Jesus talks about how, in the Sermon on the Mount, how, yes, you're going to be persecuted and you're going to suffer, they're going to throw you out of the synagogues and all that kind of stuff. And that's taking place on the kind of earthly earthly level that you can see, and it's really horrible. The unveiling of the apocalypse says, as those things happen, you are to see yourself safe before the Lamb in heaven. And that all that you suffer in the moments of your greatest persecution that might terminate in death can only lead to your victory. That's the apocalypse. And that's why it's so necessary for this book to be read and seen. So that people can have that reality unveiled to them in the midst of the deepest persecution. So that's... And part of that is the stuff about Satan. So that's, that's the way I would kind of respond to that.
3: smuggling... Bibles into the Soviet Sabbath.
1: I mean, there you had... It's there,
3: you could dig it out. Mm, yeah. Whereas before, it probably wasn't there, but yeah. the information or that,
2: yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
4: no, definitely.
2: Yeah, look, may I just add briefly to that, just to say that human beings don't need Satan in order to inflict suffering, cruelty, yeah. and oppression on each other. Human <coughs> beings are quite capable of doing that themselves. Have our own very healthy will mm. to evil, I think, without mm. him. But um, yeah, so whether he's bound or to what extent he's bound, we're quite capable of being horrible to each other. I would say too, and, and um, mm. we hate the light in our fallenness and mm. we hate God's people in our fallenness. And mm. and so I think the presence of suffering or oppression itself does not necessarily indicate Satan's bound. Yeah, bound hmm Because it just the way we treat each other.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very good.
4: Thank you, Peter.
2: And very often maybe, the Christians
3: who are persecuted, I think parts of the Middle East and parts of Africa yeah. are in fact themselves the most profound witnesses yeah. of faith and
4: hope. Yeah.
3: Beyond what we can even imagine yeah. in the midst of their
4: suffering and persecution.
1: Yeah. Mm. It's a humbling a humbling reality. Yeah. And a good place to end.
2: Yes. Philip, thank you again. We yeah. must end. Thank you very much. <laughs>